to the KDB Review Podcast. I'm Andy Davis. This is episode five of season three. Now, here's the main headline for this week's very special show. I am out of the loft, as you can probably hear. I have emerged, blinking into the light to see the world as if born anew. And of course, I headed straight for the shops. Uh, to be precise, I'm currently walking along Oxford Street in glorious London. And as you can probably hear, it is actually reasonably uh, busy for 9.30 in the morning, given everything that's going on. There is, of course, a distinct lack of tourists for obvious reasons, and there are a few more vacant shops than usual. I'm just passing the legendary Selfridges, a store where I'm reasonably sure they don't actually sell fridges. For my first formal trips out into the wild for work, I, of course, wanted to visit some retailers to see how they've been getting on since showrooms reopened and maybe get a bit more insight into what they've been doing to survive through the lockdown. So, for this very special bumper extended episode, I'm starting with a couple of legendary central London locations. And as you might have guessed, right now I'm on my way to Wigmore Street to see Graham Robertson at Halcyon Interiors. And then I'll jump on the tube and head over to Waterloo to see one of my favourite showrooms, CP Hart. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with the main man there, Paul Rowland. And at some point in the next few episodes, I'll be out again visiting a couple of local retailers that are perhaps a little more modest than CP Hart or Wigmore Street, but no less impressive in their outlook. And uh, when I say local, I mean local to me, as I take a little walk around the area where I live in South London. So here I am uh, in Wigmore Street, just heading towards Halcyon. The street itself actually seems to be as busy as ever, if I'm honest. For those that don't know the geography, it actually runs parallel to Oxford Street, and there's quite a few cafes and coffee shops here, which all seem to be doing well, so that's a good sign. As for kitchen showrooms, there's about a, I don't know, a dozen or so here, including uh, Nicholas Anthony, Boffy, Bulltop, Roundhouse, Polyform, Pogapol, and, of course, Halcyon. And there are also, of course, corporate showrooms for... Uh, KitchenAid, Gaganel Miele, although technically that's on camera displaced, and the new kid on the block, Siemens, so BSH have two showrooms here now. Okay, here I am at Halcyon, so let's find out how they're doing. So, Ryan, thank you for letting me into an actual showroom today. Pleasure. We are two metres apart. We are officially uh, all above board. I've made an appointment, so I'm here by appointment only. We're in the middle of Wigmore Street. Halcyon is like a proper stalwart of Wigmore Street. So how long has this showroom actually been here? We've been here just over 15 years. There's a couple of years that I've just sort of lost, but yeah, it's about 15 years. And this street is very famous. Everyone knows Wigmore Street. But give us an outline of who your customers actually are here. Are they locals or are they kind of people travelling here as a destination? We get a lot of locals, but... Because it is a destination, people will come far and wide. So we're doing one in Devon, we're doing one on the Isle of Wight. We do them all over, but with a core of local London people as well. Yeah, so there are, there are, I mean, there are locals here, aren't there? I yeah. mean, that's, the, that's what people forget because we're just around the back of Oxford Street. Yeah. But people do actually live, live here. here. Yeah, they do. And so. what's ironic about around here is the flats and things are pretty small. They're quite small properties unless you've got one of the big townhouses. So they're putting really quite expensive kitchens in quite small places. They are. For the, like, for the amount of space they take up, they are relatively expensive, but they've still got the same amount of appliances, just got less cupboards. And that's what makes it so interesting, because I think everyone would assume that Wigmore Street, all you do is incredibly grand projects, but actually you're we doing do. everything from small flats to, yeah, to, to, to big, big townhouses. Yeah, yeah, we do. 
You've been open again now for what a month or so. Yeah. How's it going? How's business? How's it been since you opened the doors? It's been busy generally. After each lockdown, when we opened last time after the other lockdown, I think it's lockdown too, but I've lost track. We had like a little influx of people, like the pent-up people that have been at home that just wanted to see things. So the first couple of weeks we had lots of people in. It's probably a bit quieter the last week or so, but it's been good. And how does it compare to, you know, to quote-unquote normal times? We're about level with what we normally do. So all things considered, that's a pretty good result, isn't it? I mean, are yeah. you happy with that? Yeah, very happy. And have you noticed customers being different? Are they asking for different things? Are they approaching things, their, their products in a different way? Or is, it, or is everyone just you know, getting back to normal? I think the way they approach it is it's more about getting on with people and the, the relationship's more important than it was before. And the additions are things like, because people are actually cooking in their kitchens now, because it's made people, lockdown has made people have to cook because they can't either go out or at the early stages they couldn't buy in, so they were cooking. So people are talking about steam ovens. They have don't worry so much about a microwave because they've got the time. More freezer space, more fridge space. So it's changed the way they're looking at that kitchen. They're working from home more, even though the people have gone back to work, they're working. Some people are working from their kitchens or the kids are doing schoolwork in their kitchens. A bit more baking going on. So are they looking for more space to work at, i.e. Yeah. non-kitchen work, I mean? Yes, definitely, right. yeah. And how do you approach that? as a? We've done like so hidden desk areas that fold away behind pocket doors, areas on an island where they can sit and do work with a laptop. So this is, is this all, you know, getting very crude here, but is this all, like, it's a good selling up thing, this, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. The people we, the people that we were quoting at the start of lockdown have added quite a lot of things. So the ones that, yeah, the ones that we were in the process of quoting have added, like, an extra freezer, or we've done a more advanced utility area for them, extra freezer, and definitely, yeah, we've gone up. People that have got money have still got the money, mm. and they have just spent a bit more of that money. And what do you think this whole, I mean, this is a very broad question here, but what... What do you think that the whole experience of this lockdown has done to Wigmore Street as a as a hub for, for kitchens, do you think? I think it's still it's still a hub. There are an element of people that are still frightened to come into London, so we might have lost those people, but I still think it's a hub. And does it clear out the kind of casual browser a little bit? I mean, uh, yeah, if your footfall is less, but the, yeah. the people you are getting are, are more serious. Yeah, I think it probably has, yeah. But yeah. We, I think... On, on Saturdays, there's still people browsing. We will let people in without an appointment um, if they're just browsing because we've got the space. And if we, as long as we've not got too many people in, if we've got too many people in, we wouldn't, but we haven't actually come, hasn't come to that yet. But I think it has eliminated the browsers, yes. And do you kind of hope that continues? Because, I mean, you are, it is, one of the things about Wigmore Street is it's a really busy street. I think no, but I think what has come out of lockdown is that you can do remote presentations, but you can't feel the quality in a presentation remotely. So I think a, and a browser now could be a potential customer later or two years later. So I think it's good to have browsers. But you must be able to spot them a mile off though, can you? You must be able to spot them. <laughs> or, or have you taught yourself not to do that just in case? I think it's important not to because sometimes the one that orders is the one you never expect to order. So you can't really judge it. You think you can, but you in reality you can't. Yeah, I suppose lots of people always used to judge it by the car that they pulled up outside him, but of course they don't do that yeah, here, do they? So yeah. you're judging it by their shoes or something, aren't you? Yeah, shoes um, and handbags. I mean, you're saying they've still got the money, but are they are they more conscious of money? Are they more, you know, are they thinking more about the value for money of things, the sustainability of things, the longevity of things? Are any of this has any of this changed? Do you think? I, unfortunately, I don't think the sustainability questions come up that much. The value for money, I think they want value for money. They want quality. 
but it's more about what they want, not necessarily. The money isn't the biggest subject of conversation, and I think that has changed. Generally, it was before lockdown. That is all about a lot of it came down to money, but more is about what they want, and less is about money, which is a good thing. You run this place. You're dealing with the customers. What have you learnt personally, do you think, about how you run this place? I think the relationship part of it is more important. I always like to speak to people. I didn't necessarily just like to send a message or an email. So I would I was inclined to ring someone and talk to them. But I think I'm doing more ringing and talking to people than I did before. And I think we're getting to know the customers even more than we did before. Mm. And it's the trust thing is really important for customers. So if they can get to know you more, and it's about buying the kitchen from you and it. So we, they've always said it's about buying from people, but I think it's more important than ever, especially when the odd kitchen company or odd business might not have come out of lockdown it makes people probably more anxious in that respect so if they can feel comfortable with someone that's important so i think you need to build on relationships with people and also maybe not jump also be firm with that customer so you're not just running around after them during lockdown we did lots of drawings remotely and sending things to the people to people and they weren't making the effort to come in and look at things and we're not never going to sell anything without them seeing it so it's just encouraging people now to come back into london just actually feel in touch and it saves loads of time because you what you can do in a five-minute meeting in the showroom can take you a couple of hours remotely isn't that interesting because when the first lockdown was happening so much of the discussion was about hey look we can do these remote presentations how amazing is that and you know we can we feel that this is going to be something we'll do all the time from now on because it's so much easier but actually now that we're 18 months into it you're now saying actually you've come back around full circle almost, is that you, you do want to see people and you do get better results from seeing people face-to-face. Yeah, definitely. I am quite old-fashioned in that respect, so it might not be the norm for everyone, but I think we have got a big showroom, so to sort of talk yourself out of not needing a showroom would be a shame, but I think we proved that you do actually need a showroom. And how about the management of, very practically, but the management of delays in products and... You know, the logistics of things, you've had to manage, you know, you've got staff here that, you know, presumably were furloughed and things. You know, the actual, if you like, administrative management of things. Have you, you know, have you got any thoughts about how that might change? I think with the supply and stuff, you just got to be a bit more cautious. So order it, give the suppliers a chance to get the stuff in. So order it with a longer, with it in time so that you've got a good chance of getting in, I think, and then manage that expectation with the customer and choose the products that you know are definitely going to be available. Mm. So go to those brands that have looked after you and that have proved themselves. And then maybe cho- and choose the appliances. The appliance brands are giving us like, updates of what's available and what's not. So don't choose the uh, dishwasher that's not available. Choose the one that is available. Mm. And you've got to help yourself in some ways a little bit. Um, but yeah, we, we've given, we've worked on longer lead times um, so we sometimes might have a kitchen in before we need it, right, on appliances, but then we would rather do that and it'd be ready for the client than not have it ready for the client. So there's been a bit, there has been a bit of alteration in how we do things, yes. So we're on, we're on this roadmap. We've, you know, the showrooms are opened. Now we, you can have people indoors and people can eat indoors. Where, you know, whether we do or don't hit that June the 21st deadline is a bit up for debate at the moment, isn't it? But how do you see the next year, two years actually playing out? What's your sort of forecast, your crystal ball gazing? I'm staying positive because I like to be positive. I, th- I don't know what's going to happen. I'm hoping that people will concentrate on their homes still 
because there was talk that as soon as people were allowed to go away, everyone would book a holiday and no one would buy a kitchen. And that's not proved as easy as people thought it was going to be. So I still think there'll be some spare money that was going to go on a holiday that now could go on a kitchen. And so I think that will continue. And I think people are still appreciating their homes and still wanting to improve their homes. So I think that will continue. Yeah, can you forecast or plan anything though at the moment? No. I mean, you, I you must have to do a level of forecasting when you're here. But do you, you, how far ahead are you going? I think any time you do a forecast, it never quite happens. So it's better to focus on what you're doing now and the rest will fall into place as it's meant to. Well, I think that's particularly true, given everything. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah. A tornado so can, going down the middle of Wigmore Street. Who knows? Yeah, you can worry about... You can. I think you can worry about... I, I did... There was times when I did worry about what was going to happen, what wasn't going to happen. And none of those worries ha- came true. Mm. So I then went back to where I would have thought before and not worry because it, if you focus on the right thing at the right... If you focus on now, it will... It will and with the best intention now, it will always work out. I mean, this in, you know, I've said this many times now, but this industry has been really sheltered from all of this compared to so many others. Yeah. And as horrible as it's all been, as, as, as uncertain as it all is, in a year's time, one of my predictions is actually people will start breathing enormous sighs of relief when they can really look back properly and say, actually, we, we were okay. Yeah, and we were lucky. We worked, we worked right the way through lockdown, so we were employed the whole time. We still sold... Right the way through, we still did a bit of fitting where we could safely. So we had something actually physically to do. We had people to talk to, and we had money coming in. Mm. So we are actually quite lucky. And there's, you know, there's quite a few cafes and restaurants or whatever on Wigmore Street. There's, there's obviously the Wigmore Hall itself, which is a music venue that that's obviously being closed. So you know, it is. It's right next to you, isn't it? What the reality yeah. of, of and there's, there's, there's a shop along the road that when it came up for for lease people that owned it didn't want a kitchen shop in there they wanted a food retailer or a clothes retailer in there and the food retailer went in there and it unfortunately hasn't come through lockdown so i think it's a real shame so all the the landlords that have rented to kitchen shops are still here mm. so it's yeah we've been we have been lucky as an industry i think we might have lost one kitchen showroom on wigmore street um that decided to relocate but that's the only one out of the 18 on the street so yeah. it's not bad as a complete and total aside here you are also one of the judges at our kbb review retail and design awards I am. and we did the final stage of the design judging last week so what were your takeaways from that in terms of of, of, uh, of the design and the the commitment of things because obviously the, the period of time we're covering with these awards is the entire lockdown period so what were your takeaways from all the entries and i was really saw? impressed because the standard of entries is really high there were some unu- more unusual entries, I think, where people had ha- you, you again saw the more of the story behind the entry. So the struggles that people had getting things finished, and maybe the f- the, f- the photography wasn't as sharp as it would be in other years. But you got more of a feeling of the journey to get to that end result. And in some ways, people have put more effort in to enter and to get the kitchen finished to enter. So I think the story behind it was really good, and the way that. People were looking at the design. It was more of an inclusive, holistic approach to design rather than just a stunning kitchen. There was more of a story of how it affected the family, why they'd made certain decisions, um, and then also the struggles they had getting it there. I was surprised what a variation in styles and design there was this year. Sometimes you can go through years where lots of them all look the same. And we had a lot of green kitchens this year, let's be honest. But 
that doesn't mean to say they're, they're any less valid, but actually there's a real sort of wide variation. And there's a, one of the trends that came out for me was attention to detail, really small details of things. And actually some of those really small details were the deciding factor between winning or not winning yeah. a lot of the time, weren't they? People had really gone burrowed down to the finest possible Yeah, and really detail. thought about it. And, the, and I think because people are living in their kitchens more and touching and feeling things, so is those the details of how a handle was finished or how something worked or how they had incorporated another piece of furniture rather than it this sort of idea that it all has to be brand new um some of the entries had included vintage pieces within it or built around things rather than just take, totally ripping out and starting again and we found that with kitchens that you don't have to replace everything sometimes you can reuse an appliance or keep a piece of stone it doesn't always have to be all ripped out and started again on that note uh graham thank you so much for letting me in here today right, right. i'm not buying anything <laughs> might do one day I'm in the wrong side of this business if I can afford anything down here thank you for your time I'll let you get back to your day job because you've got a client due any any minute now and you've told me who it is and it's really interesting I'm not going to give it away though but I will want to know what their final choices were that's all I'm going to say thank you I will let you know so thank you and I'll see you in September at the awards brilliant thanks a lot have you got your suit yet yeah. of course you have why did they even ask that well, thank you so much to Graham for his time. I sneaked out past him and his client as they were deep in conversation and consultation. So it's good to hear the business seems to be out there, the kitchens on the streets and the market they operate in, let's be honest, are clearly very premium. And so I don't think it's particularly representative of the industry as a whole, but as a showcase, a catwalk, a flagship, call it what you will, I think it's always interesting to see what's happening here. I'm on the tube now, on the Jubilee Line from Bond Street Station, which is actually on Oxford Street. We Londoners like to confuse tourists wherever possible, obviously. And I'm heading for Waterloo to see Paul Rowland at CB Heart. I'm clearly talking very quietly here on the tube. No one talks to each other in London on the tube, as you well know. It's actually pretty busy, not as much as normal, of course, but there's still a lot of people using it. London is definitely not just waking up, it's had a shower and it's halfway through a bowl of Rice Krispies. Let's head towards the CP Heart showroom now. If, if you've never been there, it's a spectacular place. It's actually tucked away around a corner right next to Lambeth North Tube Station, although it's only a short walk from Waterloo, and it's actually underneath the railway arches. Now, that does make you think of Phil Mitchell's garage, but it couldn't be further from it. It's tens of thousands of square feet. It's as much an art gallery for bathrooms as it is a showroom. And the architecture of the arches themselves make an amazing backdrop to what is, in my opinion, one of the best showrooms in the UK. Now, CP Heart, of course, has about 15 showrooms altogether. This is the flagship, but the others are dotted around Greater London and the South East in places like uh, Tunbridge Wells, Wimbledon, Windsor, Notting Hill, St Albans. But there's also a big showroom uh, in Manchester. 
But it's been a difficult year for everyone, and no one has been immune to the lockdown, so let's find out how CP Hart has been faring with Paul Rowland. Thank you, Paul, for sparing us a little bit of your time today. We are two metres apart. Can you confirm that? We are two metres apart, Andy. Two metres apart. We are not breaking the law. Now, we are in the CPR showroom in Waterloo. If you listen closely, you can hear trains going overhead, which is about... I'm I'm actually out of my loft, which is the main thing. So let's start with a little bit of background, because, of course, everyone knows CPR. It's one of the best-known names in the sector. But I think what people probably don't know is the sort of scale of it all in the UK, right? So what is the current scale of the operation? Because people think of it as very nice showrooms, but it's so much more than that at the moment, isn't it? Our current status is 15 showrooms, contracts division, web sales, very small amount, and a telephone sales operation. So overall, roughly £45 million turnover. Which is not inconsiderable, obviously. So you started up a month ago or so, opening up the showrooms again. Yep. How is it going? How's business so far? What's, what's the report? Yes, we did start opening the showrooms again, but we were operating through our telephone sales and we were operating through emails and teams and zoom and whatever other piece of it that you can mention that we could possibly do all through the lockdown but actual appointments with clients in the showrooms yep uh, a massive deluge as soon as the the doors were open i'm sure everybody was like that but yeah we we were um, unbelievably busy and still are and we caught up pretty quickly with last year when we were obviously open for the first quarter um, during the course of April and now ahead of last year quite significantly and indeed ahead of 2019 hopefully on course for one of our best years. Wow so how much of that was brand new business from that day and how much of it was you know, existing jobs that they'd finally had a chance to come in and look at stuff? Well you've got to remember Andy that probably 70% of our business is to the professional um, we class the professional as interior designer, architect, interior architect, developer, hotelier, etc. So we have a huge amount of repeat business and there were various projects that were rolling, rolling forward and rolling on, but there were other projects that happened extremely quickly and have in fact have already been dispatched. Uh, when you're talking about the consumer, of course, the massive pent-up demand from them, a mixture of customers who tried to do video appointments, um, couldn't make a decision without coming in and touching, feeling the product. And other consumers who've just sort of left it and realised that they weren't going to do anything until legally they could come back into showrooms and touch and feel and do all the sort of things that real consumers do. And don't get me wrong, I know some people just do take the risk and buy whole bathrooms on the internet. But for us, um, at the high end, you need to feel, you need to see... You need to understand the design ethos behind the product and how we, in fact, put them together in our showrooms. So huge, a huge sort of bow wave of interest coming, coming through, which is, which is still happening. I mean, we're having our biggest, busiest footfall weeks that we've seen in a long, 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 long time. And as you say, there's 15 showrooms, what, 13, 14 of them are obviously all in the Greater London M25 kind of area, aren't they? You've got the big one up in Manchester. Is there a variation between the showrooms? Yeah, I mean, obviously Waterloo at um, just over 30,000 square foot versus Muswell Hill at 900 square foot. Yeah. You're going to have a variation in the showrooms. and But we also try and display what we feel is right for the particular area that that showroom is in. 
so Tunbridge Wells, for example, has a, has a higher degree of, of classic and traditional product, whereas, let's say, a, a, a Regent's Park Road has more contemporary styling, more cutting edge, actually. We push the boundaries in Regent's Park Road to the cutting edge style, styling of bathroom. Whereas in Waterloo, of course, we can virtually display everything that we want to display. We, we, we've got, we've got, we're very lucky to have huge areas to, to, to trial things in, to push the boundaries, but as well as, as well as doing items that we stock, items that you could say are, are not so controversial. I mean, it's a bit of everything here, but that's what makes it such a fantastic location here. I did feel for people like you who have invested so much time, effort, money and everything else into creating a fabulous showroom experience here, because it is an incredible place to come just to, just to have a wander around and to then have to close the doors and then to be told that you can't open it and then you can't open it for months. What was that moment like when you had to literally close the door and walk away? I think like um, everybody in, in our industry and in kitchen industry, any retailer stroke showroom that relies on the product to a certain extent and the designs telling a story must have thought, like we did, oh my God, you know, batten down the hatches, conserve the cash, do all of the things that we, we actually did in 2008 when, when Lehman Brothers uh, crashed. But this could have been even even worse than that. I do think that, that um, you know, the support from, from our mate Rishi Sunak has certainly assisted and put down a sort of level playing field for all players in, in our industry and other industries, that, as, as I said before. But we then quickly thought, well, how can we change and operate slightly differently to try and bring that experience to the consumer without them walking through the front door. It was far more difficult than we ever thought it was going to be. And particularly in a place like Waterloo when somebody says, well, can I see this? And you walk 100 metres and you show them that. And then they say, can I see that? And then you have to walk 200 metres in the opposite direction to show them that. And the video calls were going on for about four hours. <laughs> and, then the, and then the client was getting exasperated. We were getting exasperated. And in the end, they just said, oh, come on, we'll just wait till lockdown's over, which, isn't, which wasn't a great signal at the time. But I have to say that our trade customers have been extremely loyal extremely supportive um, and, and got us through last year along with the government support um, we came out with you know with a reasonable result which could have been when we first sort of forecast it was almost like well you know, where can we where can we get some cash from to keep going till the end of the year yeah. but no we were, we were quite happy with, with with the result in 2020 overall in the end and uh, so far this year touch wood we're going Going great guns. I mean, you have, as you say, the, the, the showrooms that you have are all of varying different sizes and therefore varying different rents and everything else you have. I presume you must own this place by now, surely. No. Really? You've <laughs> no. been here like 100 years. No, I mean, look, we, we're not... We've always said that we're not real estate. Uh, we're not, we, we're not going to make money on property. We're here to supply bathrooms, to design bathrooms, to specify bathrooms and to service our customers to the highest... Um, to the highest degree. The point about if you own um, your showroom or own the, the, the property is, as we all know, areas in various cities or various uh, towns change and the shopping area can move. And we also know the effect of the internet. So if the shopping area is moving and the internet's having an effect, if you own your 
a property makes it far more difficult to move change. It makes you less nimble. Yeah, yeah. I was assume this one in particular because clearly this is. But the, we, we don't want to be nimble. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to be nimble here. But we have a long lease. But Charles Percival, I know that he he, he didn't see this one, did he? He was over the way no, there, no, wasn't the, he? This was the Hearts. Yeah, so the, the Hart was, Brothers yeah. did this one. Yeah. Well, look, the the contract side, just as a broad catch-all term, there things has seen you through, but. Yeah, that isn't just builders wandering having so I mean these are really some of the projects that you do and have been involved with it are the the top London projects that you've been doing. So give us an idea of what over the last year have been the kind of projects that you've been still working on. Obviously hotels has not been as mm. good and I do think that the hotel industry has possibly suffered more um, along with pubs and restaurants, etc., all to do with hospitality, but they probably suffered more than, than than anybody. The doors are shut; they've got no income, no income whatsoever, no way of of getting any income whatsoever. So, in terms of hotels, that hasn't been too hot. But I can say that a lot of a lot of hotels were doing specification work in the background. That's both owner managers of hotels and hotel groups and developers looking at ways that they can be ahead of the game when we reopen, which is just obviously round about this time. But in terms of residential, that hasn't stopped. And um, we've started and completed huge amount of residential projects, mainly in London and the South East, a couple up in the Northwest and a couple in Scotland. And the investment behind those those projects is con- is continuing. There's, there doesn't seem to be any fallback, holdback whatsoever. And that, I guess, there must have been times during that lockdown period where you look back on decisions you've made in the past to go down that route, to divide the company into two halves, if you like, even though it's not literally two halves, that you must have thought, thank God we did that. Yeah, I think the showrooms have always dealt with a professional, but they they always, it was more of on a smaller scale, you know, a house conversion to three flats or a, a single new build or two plots of, of houses but going into the con- into the contracts arena which we which we kicked off in 2008 seriously has made a massive difference for us on a number of fronts just not on, just not purely on a financial front but opened our eyes up to other products other suppliers other opportunities and di- and a, a wee bit of diversification as well so yeah it was it was a good decision 13 years ago. Can't yeah. remember who made it, though. <laughs> claim it, then. Claim it. Just say it was you. No one else remember, either. You've run this business for a long time, right? And I mean that in the politest possible way, right? And you've seen it through various, like a couple of owners, financial global crashes, now a pandemic. What lessons do you think you've personally learned about being a leader of a big company? I think the main thing is, is how the team, not just the senior team, but the whole team rallies around the flag and if you if you can get them to do that and give them the means to do their job even though they may not necessarily be in an office or in a showroom and, and today that's all about uh, technology give them the means to do their job keep them informed keeping them feeling part of a team ensuring that they understand what our short-term objectives are during any any crisis Leading them on, to, leading them on to the the medium term objectives, so they're all signed up to it and understand exactly what we are trying to do and what their part is within those uh, uh, objectives and the way that we're going to do it. What part they have to play in order us in order for us to come out the other side? 
Um, and I think, you know, let's face it, people were hugely scared, not just owners of businesses, but everybody everybody was hugely scared about their jobs, their future, their children, were they going to be even going to eat, were they going to get ill, How were they going to die? I mean, you know, a massive scare. But if you can keep the teamwork going, keep the information flow going, keep the, the, the humour going, all of those sort of things that build that whole ethos of, yeah, we're going to fight this and we're going to fight every inch of the way and also the company is behind every individual so that we can help them out if they're, if they're, if they're suffering. And that's anything from, from their families to the way that they're working to their mental health. We support them in every single way that we possibly can. And it's not just a, a false way. You've got to actually do what you say you're going to do as well. I think in both cases, you know, the, the 2008 to 2010, let's face it, wasn't life-threatening uh, compared to the pandemic. But in both of those cases, we feel that we've come out the other side wiser than we, we were beforehand. And we've also realised how fantastic i know everybody always goes on about you know company's only worth what it's what it's people are but how fantastic all the staff have been in in this company i can't tell you how proud i am of, of everybody within it and interestingly all everything you've said there applies to the smallest company or to the biggest company doesn't it it doesn't matter how big you are all those principles yeah, still apply don't for they? sure I, th I think you know smaller companies when it comes to these sort of situations that the teamwork is they're all very close they're almost like a family and the larger your company becomes the harder it is to keep to keep everybody informed you know we're, we're 170 people and trying to keep everybody informed and on, on on board and with us and flying the flag and all that sort of thing is not an easy job it's certainly not an easy job i mean but if you're a massive corporation god knows how how you do that because you know it's emails and zoom teams with six thousand people it's it's becomes completely impersonal but we've we've tried to do you know one-to-one -one sessions managers everybody listening in where there's only groups of four or five people but then cross-functional meetings as well so that every everybody was in contact with everybody where possible and what about lessons you've learned in terms of the sort of business the strategic element of it the planning element of it is there things that you sort of forced to do quickly during lockdown that you've now thought hang on we're going to carry on with that or we're going to you know we're going to adapt that oh, i mean for sure we knife and i'm sure like everybody we knifed and fought everything through as quickly as you possibly can trying to keep people informed all the time trying to keep them part of it of, of all the time i'm not sure that's a great way to operate because trying to do a three-year business plan when you're going to knife and fork the stuff in through your processes and what have you that that can't work for for a, for a long time, and I I do think that you know every member of staff here has got to the point sometimes when they thought God Almighty I don't think I can carry on doing this, but they have because they've they've had to, but it is um, incredibly tiring, exasperating, and that is not the way to operate. People need to sit back, have their thinking time, understand their personal goals and the company's goals and how they fit in. So when you're doing long-term planning that is definitely not the way to do things mm. but when you are doing that planning now do you have in the back of your head let's hold a bit more stock than we did before let's you know let's compensate a little bit for any delays that might come through our supply chains is it possible to build in a, a catastrophe line in your planning like just in case you just don't know do you You just don't know yeah, is, you, are you, you more inclined to think about maybe keep a bit more cash behind or something i mean look cash is king Every, 
all business, it's all about managing your cash flow. But I don't think that you can always squirrel money or squirrel anything, stock money, anything. I mean, the two go against each other just in case something awful is going to happen. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you did that, you, you're not going to grow, you're not going to improve. You've got to work with your suppliers, you've got to work with your customers in times of crisis, which is, I think, what we did and what every, you know, I imagine most businesses try to do, is to, to work with sitting in the middle of the supply chain and the customer. That's what we, we try to do, to ensure that we, give, we could give the best possible service under the circumstances. And I have to say that most of our customers, most of them, were incredibly flexible and incredibly understanding. I think it's wearing now. (laughs) And we've also now got the issue of imports, Brexit, surcharges, material prices going up incredibly, transportation with containers being in, in the wrong places all around the world, which is impacting also on the recovery from the pandemic. So it's almost like a, a perfect storm that we're having to manage. So how, how do you plan then for what's happening? Because you know, you're always moving forward here. So what's, what's in the pipeline for the next two, three years? Or is it just a case of, hang on a minute, let's just see what happens? We believe that now is the time to, to look to expand. So we're, um, we're always looking for good people, point one. But we're always looking at ways of, of expansion from our core base, i.e. showrooms, and for expanding uh, through our contracts division and also looking for new suppliers. Whether or not we go down web sales route at the moment is something that we haven't actually put our finger in. We finger on. We still think that web, web sales, to a certain extent, is, is a distressed purchase. And that really and truly, if you, uh, particularly at the, at the higher end of the market, you really need to, as I said before, touch, feel, see, understand design, understand longevity, quality. Um, and, and these days, I've got to say, and I'm so pleased, so pleased about this, customers are thinking about sustainability. So not just that the product's going to last a long time, but where was it made? What is the, what is the whole supply chain? Even is it carbon positive, carbon negative, otherwise known as carbon sink or carbon neutral? Is that, is that product, how did it get here? How much did, how much did it cost in, ter- in terms of carbon to get it here? Which is an absolutely fantastic ethos for me because I, I do think that we all want to see, have our grandchildren see polar bears in 50 years' time. So we've got to be acting now, and that is every aspect of our, of our life. Is that driven by the contract side of things, though? Is that them asking those questions more than the public? No, it's more the about show? the developer. Yeah. So the developer... They must have to tick those yeah, boxes, don't yeah, they? Yeah, so the developer and the investor are thinking about those yeah. uh, those things. A lot of the thinking interior designers are also, and interior archi- architects, are also thinking about that. Why should they put in product that's cost, in terms of carbon, a huge amount, yeah. when they can put in a sustainable product? But not only that, it's not going to be replaced in two years' time or three years' time. It will last a lifetime. Mm. And has a design that is of a of a classical style, and I'm not talking about traditional here, I'm talking about a design classic that could last forever. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up what to do online because I suspect you're probably right about distressed purchase, but you have been building up you know, an own brand. You've, you know, there is a CP Heart brand, obviously. 
And you must get the same issues that every other retailer does, big or small, of people waving prices off the internet in front of you when you've when you've you're specking product for them. Is that something that you just accept and you know take it on the chin, or is that you know do you have a, a way of getting around that? Well, we do. Yeah. Look, our, the the biggest in terms of volume, our web sales um, account for less than two percent. What's interesting is is that the highest selling line on our web are toilet seats, <laughs> replacement toilet seats. And that has actually taken quite a lot of hard work away from our sales staff who do really do not want to sit there all day long and just sell a toilet seat to whoever walks through the door. So there's some, there are some good elements of it. But in terms of, of when we're doing a full, full quotation and a client comes back with, well, I can buy this on the internet for that or I can buy that on the internet for that, We've hopefully done our work at the beginning that has ensured that the client is investing in CP Heart, in the knowledge, in the salesperson. When I say the salesperson, I mean the expert in terms of specification, in terms of marshalling the goods all together, delivering them when, when the client wants them or the client's builder wants them. And everything should run smoothly, as well as if something does go wrong, or the product needs looking after in a year's time, two years' time, etc. through its warranty, we're here. Mm. And we're here to, to service that client for as long as, as long as need be. Now, I'm not saying that you know, if you buy on the web, that's the, that's the opposite effect. But what I will say is, is that my experience shows me of the issues that some of our clients have had and said, I wish, we, I wish we'd actually mm. come and bought it from you. Is there anything you can do to help us out? Do you know what we do? We help them out. Because that's what, that's what we're here for. But you must, though, share the frustration that many other retailers have. Their frustration is with the brands. You know, their frustration is, why can't you control this better? While I appreciate that you get around it, as all re- good retailers should do, by, by the service option of it, there must be a part of you going, oh, for God's sake, that doesn't make my life easy. Well, no, I mean, look, the manufacturers have got a responsibility, but they also legally can't, can't get involved in price fixing. So if, if they choose to sell to somebody that's then going to put, put something on the website for a ridiculous price, that's their decision to sell to them in the first place. But they've got no control over what price is then put out into, into the marketplace. Now, we, we all, as you know, have quite a lot of our own branded products. We have quite a lot of our exclusive products um, in the UK, um, we we sell exclusively in the UK. That do, that does help us, but I do feel for other retailers who who don't have an own brand product that have to go along and fight every inch of the way for every single SKU that's on a quote. So yeah, it, it, the manufacturers have got to take control of it. It might be that they're getting getting to grips with it, but from a legal standpoint, they cannot control the pricing. I mean, look, it's going to run and run, that one. And I don't, there is no sort of immediate solution to it because what the internet has done is expose decades of price variations across different markets. It's as simple as that. Well, no, you, you'll be surprised about the pricing variations between the UK and Europe. And I'm not just talking about exchange rates here. I'm talking about absolutely different, different prices and sometimes different prices between the same, the same countries in Europe. You know, Spain has a different price to Germany or France or the lowlands or or Italy, to the UK, you know. So, you know, yeah, there's a the price 
transparency, whatever you want to call it. And we know that the large German pure play web sellers, such as Reuters, they've got a different pricing structure to us. I did do a test purchase from one of them in Germany, actually, and then I tried to return the product, and it cost it would have cost me more to return the product than it, than it did for me to buy it. Luckily, it was a stocked item for CP Heart, so I just put it straight into stock. <laughs> put it on myself. Yeah. So, look, okay, let's round this off now with what you think is going to happen in the market in the next one, two, three years. What's your crystal ball predictions? It's, I, I still think it's quite a difficult one. I mean, I don't... You know, various commentators are saying that Q4 2021 and Q1 2022 are probably going to be the most difficult two quarters as we all get back into trading as we normally do. Some companies can overtrade and run out of cash. We've got a few issues with builders and developers getting credit limits. And they might overtrade, and then that could involve cash issues for the supplier if they haven't credit insured properly. So I do, th- I do think that we've got to get through to the summer of 2022 before we can feel that. I'm not saying the pandemic will ever be behind us because we'll all be going to be jabbed every single year by the sound of things. But I do think we've got to get to the summer of 2022 before we can see clear blue water. And then who knows what's going to happen. There might be some consolidation within... I'm talking about the bathroom industry here, but there might be some consolidation in the bathroom industry. We know it's happening in in merchants, um, significantly happening in merchants. And I also think that we'll, we'll be clearer about whether the internet during the pandemic, whether that trend sticks in, our, in, in, in the bathroom industry or whether or not it, it peters away to a certain extent. It is interesting because I've spoken to other retailers who perhaps in you know, June, July, August last year were saying, oh, remote appointments are the future. We're going to do this all the time now. This is so fantastic. It filters out all those tire kickers. And actually now year later nearly they're all saying actually people want to come and talk, see us they want to talk to us they want to come into the show they want the they want the face-to-face it's reminding everybody how important the face-to-face is rather than reminding people how convenient online is well I, i've got a view on tire kickers or plinth kickers as they were called in the kitchen industry i don't want to call them in the bathroom industry there's actually not a lot to kick i suppose you could be bath panel kickers or they'd be tap twiddlers or something tap twiddlers yeah, yeah. But my, my view is is that 80% of those tap twiddlers are just at the start of their journey mm. and they're just trying to find their way. Um, they don't know, when they're in CP Heart, they don't know whether they're in the right place or they go to uh, Mama and, and Papa just around the corner. They don't know whether that's the right place for them. So they may be fiddling, but those people are the probably... They're more conscious of taking their time. And we believe that the average time is about 10 months from first thing of saying, I think we need a new, uh, new bathrooms to when they, when they actually get it delivered. You know, some people take three bloody years over it. or they, you, know, you, you, just don't, you just don't know. And other people come in here and say, well, that, 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 that. Can you deliver it next week, please? No, I'm really sorry, we can't. But, but we get where you're coming from. So all these tap twiddlers... I'm going to use that from now on. All these tap twiddlers are, are genuine customers of the future somewhere. Yeah. Maybe not for me, 
but somewhere they are genuine customers and they want to twiddle those taps. They definitely want to twiddle those taps. Mm. They don't want to look at pictures. They don't know, you know whether it's good enough quality. They want, to, they want to feel, they want to touch, they want to see. You've got to remember, you know, but somebody's bathroom, it's the first thing that they go to in the morning and it's the last thing they're in at the night before they, they, they go to bed. So it's, it's an important place. It's a, you know, I'm, God, I'm not going to repeat whatever he's written about. Oh, God, it's a, it's a place of sanctuary. And da, 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 da. But, it bloody, well, that. but yeah. it bloody well is. Yeah. You know? And so it's the only place where actually your whole body is going to touch the product that you buy. No other product you do that. Apart from your clothes and your underwear, of course, but there's no other long-term product that you buy that your whole body is going to touch. You've got to feel so comfortable. It's like a second skin. Mm. So you have to feel it, touch it, see it. Well, I can't think of a better way to bring it to a close than that, Paul. So look, thank you so much for your time. Any excuse to come to this showroom is always good. And every time you use the word tap twiddlers now, I will expect some kind of small commission. No worries, Andy. Okay, that's brilliant to hear from Paul. So interesting to hear how a company the size of CP Heart has dealt with those lockdowns and how the split of its business between retail and contract saw it through the first period of uncertainty. A lot of forward planning going on there, I think. But it's also good to hear Paul's views on lessons learned, as like I said, I don't think there's anything there that doesn't apply whatever the size of your business. But that's it. I'm heading home, and in probably a couple of episodes' time or so, I'll be taking another trip to see some smaller, yet equally impressive and interesting retailers and they're the ones that are local to me. So that's proper local independent retail. I'll see you next time.